morning, everyone. That was a slightly shorter hymn than I was expecting. <laughs> well, we have made it to February and all the kids are back at school and the summer holidays are starting to be a bit of a distant memory, um, what we had of summer this year. And all of the activities and programs of the church are starting up again. We've seen many of them start up over this past week. And what a journey we have had these past five years or so as we have moved through dissolving two smaller churches to become a larger one, as we have settled on a new name, as we've called a new pastor, as we've witnessed a new building go up around us, and then as we sat in our homes, unable to use that new building for such a long time. And in all of it, we have seen the hand of God at work, haven't we, in the big things and in the little things as well. And we look forward to finally being able to celebrate all of that journey uh, when we come together to give thanks and commission our new building on the 27th and 28th of March. And the big question on many people's lips now is where to from here? Where to now? There is much anticipation about what God is doing and what he will do in this place. And those of us who, like me, are naturally doers, are eager uh, to get down and do something and to see things happening. We want to get things done. The trouble is we don't quite know what just yet. And in my mind, I see our situation a bit like that old computer game Frogger. I don't know if many of you would remember that computer game. It was one of the early ones that came out and you had to guide a frog through five lanes of traffic without him getting squashed by the cars. And then once he gets to the side of the river, there are logs that come floating along and the frog has to jump from log to log to log and they keep moving. Um, and he has to get to the other side. And in my mind, that river for us is endlessly wide. And we have jumped together from log to log to log as we've negotiated all of those changes, um, mergers and new names and new pastors and new buildings and COVID. And now we're looking for the next log. Where is it coming? But it hasn't come along just yet. There's a name for the season that we find ourselves in. It is called a liminal season. It is that period of time between a time of great activity and the clarity about what lies ahead. Liminal seasons are part of life. Individuals experience them, businesses experience them and churches experience them. And as I see it, there are three temptations that face us in a liminal season. Firstly, there is that temptation to go back and to do what we've always done. And that temptation comes from that mindset of what we know we are comfortable with and what we are comfortable with is safe. 
The second temptation is to do nothing but enjoy the season. And that temptation comes from that mindset of we've worked hard for this. Let's enjoy it. Let's run our programs and do the things that make us feel good. And the third temptation is the temptation to forge ahead, to become impatient, to try and create our own logs and to keep jumping from one to the next. And that is driven by the mindset that there must appear to be something happening for something to actually be happening. We must be able to measure it. In life, we have these liminal periods, something that we have thrown all of our energy into has been achieved and we don't quite know what is coming next. Little children grow up and move on to attend school and mum is left at home. That is the liminal season for her. High school or university students graduate and perhaps what's next is not quite clear. They too are in a liminal season of life. Children grow up, they leave home, the nest is suddenly empty. Older parents find themselves once again in another liminal season. A worker retires. Missionaries return from the mission field and come home. We pass from one stage of life to the next and in between sometimes there are these liminal seasons. Churches have these too, those times of transition when there has been much change, perhaps much growth, but the way forward is not entirely clear yet. But mission does not cease in those liminal periods and how we react during that time says a lot about our attitude towards mission. To go back to what we are most comfortable with says that we know best. We've got this under control. We know how to do it. We know what works. We know best. We'll just keep doing what we've always done, the way we've always done it. And under that scenario, mission is reduced to a formula. That's the kind of Pharisaic approach. They had no need for Jesus because they had it all figured out on their own. To do nothing is to essentially say we don't care about mission. We just want to enjoy ourselves and enjoy what we've got. We want to enjoy one another. We want to enjoy the space or the building. We'll have our little groups and our functions and do the activities that all of us enjoy. And under that scenario, mission is sidelined. It's off the agenda completely. To forge ahead looks like we're all about mission, but if we're not careful, that can be just a facade. Often what that says is that we don't really understand mission at all. We have mistaken mission for activity. And that is a gaping big trap that consumes a lot of churches. Now, of course, what I have just presented is a gross oversimplification. Of course, there are great things about the past that should be retained into the future and we don't want to be too shy of forging ahead 
or we may well get stuck never doing anything. But the great danger in each of these three responses is that mission becomes about us, about what we are comfortable with, about what we want or what we think. And in each of the attitudes that I've expressed here this morning, it's easy for us to forget that mission is primarily not our work. It has and it always will be God's work. And as individuals or together as a church, we are either resisting or cooperating with that work that God is already doing. It follows then that if we are going to cooperate with God in his work, we need to know what that work is. And at this point you might say, well, we're back where we started from, aren't we, with the the frogger analogy, the next log hasn't come along, so how could we possibly know what it is that God wants us to cooperate with him in? And it's at this point that we need to think about our perspective and perhaps adjust our perspective. We'll see those logs, they will come along when we have the right perspective. If we will but lift our eyes from this sort of viewpoint, looking down for the next log to come along and instead look about us, we will see that mission is going on all around us. The mission of God is not to be found in any individual program or even in any individual organisation. It is far bigger than that. It is not restricted to any particular period in time, for it has been since the beginning of time and it will be until the end of the earth. Is it the Great Commission? Is that what mission is? Is that what you think mission is? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Is that the mission of God? Can I suggest that the Great Commission is part of a much bigger picture and that is transformation. The mission of God is primarily a mission of transformation and that doesn't change. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forevermore it will be the same. We need not wonder what God is doing or what he wants us to do. He's doing what he's always done. It is the work of transformation. And that transforming work is played out in the lives of individuals. It's played out on a larger scale in churches or communities. And it is his desire to transform nations. In the Old Testament, he was doing that work of transformation. Israel was being transformed into a people who would show God's character to the nations. They were to be a kingdom of priests who would represent God to the nations. Solomon, when he dedicated his temple, prays, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, 
For men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. And then he goes on to pray for these people, these foreigners. How did Solomon envisage these foreigners would hear about God's great name? It would be through Israel and through God's dealing with Israel. Israel were to be a people who were to be transformed. They were to be a people who were to be transformed so that they could represent God's character to the nations. Now, granted, they didn't always do that very well, but that was the intention. In the New Testament, the mission of God continues to be a mission of transformation. Believers are to be transformed into the image of Christ and they can represent God in that way to the nations. Some of this work is visible. We see mission agencies going all over the world taking the gospel to people who have never heard it because the first stage in that transformation is, of course, salvation, coming to accept Jesus. We see churches with fabulous outreach programs. We see people sharing good news with their families and with their friends. And it's all great stuff. But it must not be done at the expense of the invisible. The visible must never be done at the expense of the invisible because if it is, ultimately, it is destined to crumble. One of my favourite stories is told by Gordon MacDonald in his book, Building Below the Waterline. And he tells of the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge that spans the East River between Manhattan and Brooklyn in New York. Construction of that bridge began in 1869. And the bridge, at, the longest, at that time it was the longest um, suspension bridge in the world, opened in 1883. 1869 to 1883, in all 14 years it took to complete the construction of that bridge. The work was painstakingly slow, but it remains today a feat of architectural and engineering brilliance, and for its time it was simply outstanding. And a key feature of this bridge are these two huge tower structures which support the rest of the construction or the structure of, of the bridge. And for a long time during construction, it appeared that not much at all was happening on the construction of the second tower. The first one had gone up and the people marvelled at it, but it didn't look like anything much was happening on the second one. And the public were getting agitated. They wanted to see some progress. And so the chief engineer on that project prepared this statement in 1872. He wrote, To such of the general public as might imagine that no work has been done on the New York Tower because they see no evidence of it above the water, I should simply remark that the amount of masonry and concrete laid on that foundation during this past winter underwater is equal in quantity to the entire masonry of the Brooklyn Tower visible today above the waterline. It is a huge mistake 
to focus only on that which is visible. The transforming mission of God always continues. We may not immediately see the results from it, but we are called, all of us, to be part of it. Much of the work that that construction crew did on the Brooklyn Bridge happened underwater when nobody saw it. It was brave and difficult work. The chief engineer on that project, John Roebling, died early on in the project as a result of an accident on site. He handed the work over to his son, Washington Roebling, and he was struck down with decompression sickness so badly that he had to direct the rest of the work from an apartment using binoculars to see what was going on. In all, at least 20 men died on that project and many, many more suffered from the decompression sickness, a result of having to go underground to do all of their work. Yet what they achieved underwater has stood the test of time. That bridge remains today. Those massive towers have remained for nearly 140 years because of the transforming work that was done where no one saw it, underground, below the waterline, on the foundations of those towers. And it's that type of work that we want to focus on this year as we seek to join God in the work of mission that he is doing. It would be easy for us to jump onto some new project, to create one, to occupy us all. But that which is visible will only endure if that which is invisible has been attended to and attended to well. And so if we are to be a missional community in this part of the world, we must ensure that our foundations are attended to and that they are attended to well. We must do that hard, invisible work of personal transformation and that will be our focus this year. And you might well ask at this point, where's the biblical imperative for this? The Bible says go and make disciples. Mission is all about transforming the world, and it is, and the Bible does indeed say that. But it is also about personal transformation, and the Bible has a lot to say about that as well. So if you'd like to turn with me now to today's scripture, we're going to consider this work of personal transformation. We're looking at one of Paul's letters to the church in Philippi, reading from Philippians chapter 2. Um, and we're going to start at verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, Sorry, my screen keeps disappearing at the back. If any uh, common sharing in the spirit, da, 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 da. if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. Well, having given another one of my very long introductions this morning, you will all be relieved to know that in the time that we have left, I want to focus mainly on those last couple of verses, that exhortation that Paul has given to the church in Philippi to continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. Now, on first look, this is a very curious statement on several accounts. Firstly, because a key theme of Paul's writings is that we're saved by grace alone, not by works. And yet here we're being told to work out our salvation, continue to work out our salvation. Secondly, because it says we we are are to continue to work out our salvation, but it is God who works in us. So we or God or who's doing the work here? We are working, we're working out, but God's working in us. So the most obvious question for this morning has to be, if we are saved by grace, If our salvation is a gift from God, then why is Paul telling us that we need to keep working at it? And the answer is that work and work out are not the same. If you are working, you are labouring towards something. You are putting in the effort and you expect to see a reward for your effort that is congruent with the amount of effort that you personally have put in. The results depend on you. The effort is yours and the results depend on the effort that you put in. The word that is translated here as work out means to produce something. And you might say, well, it's a fine line. There's not much difference there in in what you're telling me. But it is a word that was often used in reference to agricultural production. 
So the imagery that Paul is giving us here is like that of a farmer tending the precious crop to bring it to harvest. So we're not toiling away on our own here to achieve our salvation because that's already been done. The crop has already been planted. It's there. It's there by grace. We're saved by grace. Instead, we are to carefully cultivate what has already been done, what has already been planted, so that much fruit will come from it. So we could render that little passage, continue to cultivate your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. That might be one way of rendering that verse. And the reason, of course, that anyone cultivates anything is to produce a harvest. Fruit is how we know that we are disciples. John 15, 8 tells us that. And the fruit we are to produce, we know to be the fruit of the Spirit. We read that in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the kind of fruit that we're talking about here. How do we produce this fruit? Well, we heard it a couple of weeks ago, John 15.5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. There's no doubt about it. Branches that remain in the vine are fed by the vine and they take on the unique characteristics of that particular vine. The ongoing work of salvation then is this process of transformation into Christ-likeness as we are continually nourished by Christ who is our true vine. And we're saved from our own rule in the various aspects of our life in which we are least like Christ. That is how we produce good fruit in accordance with the vine that nourishes us. So in a practical sense then, how do we continue to work out or cultivate our salvation? Well, we do it by cultivating that union that we have with the vine, who is Jesus. The ongoing work of salvation is the process of our transformation into Christ-likeness. The effort that we put into that process is not about earning merit, nor does it undermine Paul's teaching that we are justified by faith. Justification by faith opposes our efforts to earn God's favour, but not our efforts to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in his work of transformation in us. That is soul work. And therefore much of it happens in secret, in private, out of the view of others. It is daring work because if we are to become more like Christ, 
then that change will have to happen in those areas where we are least like Christ. And it can be hard work because giving up in some of those areas, handing them over for Christ to transform by his Holy Spirit is not always going to be easy for us. It is foundational work because if we truly know God, we will only truly know God when we cultivate the attitudes and characteristics of Christ. That is how God is known in us. I know that some of you are champing at the bit um, to see new ministries happen in this place. There are all sorts of great ideas that people are coming up with, with what we can do for, with the social cafe area or what we might do in the upstairs hall. And if you, like me, are one of those people that likes to get things done, we need to stop and remember why it is that the Brooklyn Bridge has stood the test of time. Why those hulking great sandstone towers have stood firm generation to generation. Because brave men dared to descend down in the caisson, in that underwater chamber, and do the work that nobody noticed down deep on those foundations. The mission of God is all about transformation, but that transformation must begin with us. We can't hope to go and transform the world if we ourselves are not prepared to submit to that work of transformation. You can never go wrong spending extra time tending to the foundations, but you can go horribly, horribly wrong launching off in this direction or that without ensuring that the foundations are sure. Gordon MacDonald talks about foundations. Eugene Peterson talks about angles. Essentially, they're talking about the same thing. We talked about angles at our leaders' retreat yesterday, for those of you that might be interested in the types of things the leaders are talking about. And we talked about angles because it is an apt metaphor uh, for us as we come to commission this building that we're sitting in now in a couple of months' time. When you bring your friends back to this place, friends who have known this place and been here before, they walk in and they notice a difference. They can't help but notice a difference. And I've seen it as people come in, they ooh and they ah about the size of the foyer and the height of that ceiling in there. They look at the walls and the finishes, things that are just totally different to what we used to have before. They look at the fixtures and, and the things that we put in the building and they notice how different things look. No one yet has walked into this building and looked around and said, wow, what great angles this place has got. Because nobody notices the angles. They're, they're there, they're essential. In fact, they're the most essential part of the building, you might argue, because the angles are critical to the integrity and the structure of the building. No one sees them but fail to get them right and you're in a whole lot of trouble because that building's not going to stand for very long. It won't be long before you start to see cracks and things crumbling and falling apart. Angles are what give a building its form and its integrity and they are for us an image of those things, those practices, those spiritual disciplines 
that form us spiritually. Neglect them and we too lose our integrity. We lose our integrity as Christians. We are saved through faith in Christ. Our eternal destiny is secured once that faith decision has been made. But Christ-likeness is a journey and it is a lifelong journey that we travel together. And as the Apostle says, we must continue to work out or cultivate our salvation with fear and with trembling. And Jesus has laid out a very clear pathway of what this journey looks like, this road that we must travel. He has described for us the changes that will happen inwardly and he has described for us some of the things that we should see outwardly as we begin to travel that road. And we call that teaching the Beatitudes. And for the next 10 weeks, we're going to immerse ourselves in the Beatitudes. Most weeks, we're only going to cover one verse at a time because we want to stop and linger in this space and do this foundational work. We want to do this work that is absolutely critical for the future Christian mission in this place. No one plants a crop and expects to reap a harvest immediately. Musicians don't pick up an instrument and expect to be experts immediately. And athletes don't choose a sport and expect that they will excel in it straight away. Farmers and musicians and athletes, all of them know that planting a crop, picking up an instrument or choosing a tennis racket is just the beginning of what will be a journey for them. A decision for Christ is likewise the beginning of a journey. It is not the end. Farmers must cultivate Musicians must practice and athletes must train. And all of them have an end goal in sight. All of them must be disciplined in their pursuit of it. We can see farmers out in the field doing the work of cultivation. We can hear musicians practice. Now, we used to live near someone who was learning the bagpipes. Everybody in the neighbourhood knew when this person was practising. We see athletes sweating it out in the field or the gym, or practising that shot over and over and over again. They do it so that it's ingrained in them. What we don't often see is the way that Christians work towards their goal. How do we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the process of our own transformation into Christ-likeness? In a practical sense, what does it mean to continue to work out your salvation? What sorts of practices might be helpful to us? These are the things that we will be exploring together as we look at this pathway towards spiritual formation. We're going to look at it in a general or conceptual sense through the teachings on a Sunday morning as we explore the Beatitudes. And then hopefully in the, the second part of the year, Pastor Glenn and I would like to follow that up with um, some more practical teaching, some sessions that will allow those that are interested to practice some of these disciplines that you may or may not yet already be familiar with. But they're disciplines that have been helpful to so many who have gone before us in the faith. 
And in all of it, we remember that the work is the Lord's. We merely choose to resist or to cooperate with his Holy Spirit in our own transformation. Father, we thank you that your mission on earth is not complete. We thank you for this great work of transformation that you have been doing since the very beginning of time. And Lord, we thank you that you have called us to be part of it. Help us, Lord, to cooperate and not to resist you because we want to be more like Christ. Amen.